You saying I'm off? <laughs> I've been told that before. So we're going to try to rise up to that challenge. You stay engaged, I'll stay moving, and we'll stay awake. I hope that'll be the plan. I was able to participate in a television program called Getting to Know Your Bible that published or came out of Somerdale, uh, Alabama. And I think that that is a well-titled program. I think it describes the challenge that we face in society today, and that is to get to know our Bible and to adequately know our Bible. Hosea 4 and verse 6 says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will reject you. So the cost is high for our not knowing the Bible. And I think you would agree with me if I were to say that we just don't know our Bibles like we once did. And there's a lot of different reasons for why we don't know our Bibles. Maybe we'd say, I just don't have enough time. With all that's going on in this busy world, I don't know when I would fit it in. You know, our technology's given us uh, supposedly all this extra time, and we don't know where it goes, but I don't know that we know the Bible better having been given those conveniences. Perhaps people say that I don't study or know my Bible because I'm not sure how relevant it is to my everyday life. How, how could that book, really, that's been written so long ago, be applicable to me in the situations, the problems, the challenges that I face today? And yet those who study the Bible faithfully will say that it seems as though the Bible has just fallen from the sky. It's as relevant as the morning news and much more beneficial. Well, perhaps people will say, I'm not sure that it is the Word of God. We've been looking at how we got our Bible, and it's a faith-affirming, faith-building study that we can trust that this is indeed from God. But I think that there are a lot of good, honest people who would study their Bibles more if they understood it better. They say it's a big book. I don't know how to sift through, sort through, and understand what the Bible is all about. It's 1,189 chapters, 31,104 verses. And it's not atypical for you to say, well, here's some names I'll throw out for you. How about Adam, Samson, David, Peter, Job? Where do they all fit together? People say, I just don't know how to untangle all of that. We're talking this year about engaging everyone for eternity. And if we're going to engage everyone for eternity, I do believe that it's important for us to be able to make an apologia, a a, a defense of our faith, as 1 Peter 3 verse 15 tells us that we should. We do so with meekness and fear, but it begins with having a knowledge of what God's Word has to say. And the thing is, you think of who the greatest Bible scholar is that you know, the one who knows the Bible the best. They're going to always be studying and never get to the end of or exhaust the riches of God's Word. But what we can do is that we can understand the Bible as a whole. And if we understand the Bible as a whole, we can sit down and we can begin to make a lifetime of putting the meat on the skeleton of those bones. But what we need to do is not only know this, but share this. Because there are people who are going to give an account. Jesus says in John 12, 48, The word that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the last day. So what I'd like for us to do is to take a few moments and look at the skeleton to see what God's word is all about and then to walk through all of that. It will provide a means, I believe, for us to be able to share with the lost people in our lives who would study the Bible if they knew the Bible. And it will allow us to kind of figure out where all of it fits together. 
And the place that we begin as we study that is to look at the very theme or the idea of the Bible itself. And as we look at that theme, it is the salvation of man through Christ to the glory of God. No matter where you're looking in Scripture, if you are studying in Genesis or in Malachi, Matthew, Revelation, or any point in between, you are seeing unfold this theme, that we're sinners in need of salvation. It doesn't matter what color you are, how much money you make, where you live, when you live, you need salvation. And the Bible is devoted from beginning to end to addressing that very subject. But how? Or through whom, perhaps, is the better way to ask this. The salvation that we need comes through the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero and the centerpiece of the Bible. When you think about the fact that Christ is the one about whom this book is written, it helps us to look at the Bible historically. And the Bible is a history book. It has geography, it is subject to archaeology, it has science and scientific foreknowledge. Every way that you could measure a book historically, it has people, places, and things. Then that history has to have a focal point. We think about our nation, our history has a focal point. Perhaps it's the Constitution, or perhaps it's the Revolutionary War, or the Civil War, or some event. The Bible has a focal point, and it's Jesus. It is the task of the Bible to tell us that our salvation comes through a historical figure, one who is in eternity with God, deity, but one who became man and who died in our place. And it is for the glory of God. The Bible is written to explore the theme of our salvation through the person of Christ so that God is glorified. If you saw in that passage that Cason read so well a moment ago that we have glory at the end of that chapter it says to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. God made us of all creation in his image and only us. And when we are doing what's right in his sight we bring him glory. When we sin it's a reproach on him. But when we are right in his sight then we bring him glory. It's hard for me to understand that fully. I understood something about that when we brought uh, Gary into this world and Dale and Carl. When you see that newborn child and that child is going to fall short. But when that child says I love you on its own initiative without being prompted. That voluntary love was glorifying. It reflects on us well. And in a more infinite sense when we obey Christ and we become his children. We bring a glory to God. Now I said a moment ago that the Bible is a book of history. It is his story. And that skeleton that I want us to walk through real quick is that skeleton from Genesis to Revelation that will help us to know and to share what the Bible is all about. When we come to the Bible, the first thing we see is that it's revealing to us that the Messiah is needed. That's Genesis chapter 1, 1 through chapter 3 and verse 14. We can remember the first three chapters of the Bible with five P's. There's the people, Adam and Eve. There's the place, they're in the Garden of Eden. There's a precept, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a penalty, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. And there's a presumption on Adam and Eve's part, they did it, and as a consequence, they're separated from God. If we understand the Bible right, God created us in sinless perfection, Without any separation from him, God could fellowship with us. But when the decision was made for us to sin and to fall short of the glory of God, there's a separation between us and God. 
There's a chasm that we can't cross ourselves. And so if the problem's going to be resolved, then God's got to do the one that's going to reach out and do the solving. And so we have the Messiah is needed. There's a problem we can't solve. God's got to solve it for us. But God makes a promise. In, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, we have the Messiah promised. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Eve is deceived and she partakes of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil she gives to her husband, that God comes to them in the garden and he addresses Adam first. Adam abdicates his responsibility. God speaks to Eve and she blames the serpent. Finally, God speaks to the serpent. And it's in Genesis 3.15 that he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now God is making a promise that's going to find its fulfillment first at the cross when Jesus is hung and Satan believes that he's won. Jesus, the Son of God, is killed on a cross. But when Jesus comes out of the grave the third day, that, that curse of sin is undone. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, it says that we were all our lifetime subject to bondage, but Jesus, by dying for us, has given us that living hope, 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. So God promises, I'm going to solve the problem that you've gotten yourself into, that sin problem. The thing is, when God makes a promise, he's got to keep it. If God breaks his word, he's not God. Because God is of sinless perfection. He can't even look on evil. And so starting in Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of the Bible, God is setting in motion a promise that he is going to build a bridge that will allow us to be reconciled to God. So we have the Messiah's needed, and then the Messiah's promised. And then we have the Messianic genealogies. God is in a, a, a building project he is going to span that chasm of separation between us and God. And he's going to do it in time. He's going to do it through generations. And so we see those first ten planks on the bridge that lead us to Christ. And that's Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. God is building a bridge to eliminate the separation, and he's doing it in time. So we have the Messianic genealogies, those generations through whom the Savior is going to come. But we see in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 that the Messianic line is preserved. It's preserved because there's a problem. And the problem is that man has grown wicked. We look in Genesis chapter 6 in Noah's lifetime. And the Bible tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and it repented God that he made man. It says that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart were only evil continually. And so in that state of perpetual violence and destruction and rebellion against God, God says, I'm sorry I've made man. I'm going to destroy him. Sometimes what we'll say about the God of the Old Testament is that he is a God of holiness. He's a God of wrath, a God of justice. And we'll say of the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy and grace and kindness. And both of those are partially right answers. The God of heaven is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. And so the God of the New Testament is a God of justice. Look at Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. But the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace. Genesis 6 and verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We can look in Genesis chapter 9 and we can see Noah's not a perfect man. He's going to get drunk and he's going to uncover himself. And yet he was a man who heard what God told him to do, and he's obedient. And I want you to keep in mind that though God has determined to destroy anyone who doesn't get in that ark, God's promise is still in play. 
It's still preserved. Anyone that got on the ark that day was going to be saved from destruction. God saved through the water, and God still saves in the same way today, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 21. But Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives got on the ark, and they make it safely through the destruction 2 Peter chapter 3 says God will never destroy the earth with water again. And on the other side of that, God's promise is still intact. It's still going to come to fruition. We see next that we have the Messianic genealogies. The next ten planks on the bridge, Genesis 10 and 11. We look at Noah's son Shem. Shem, our fact said, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sirug, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. God is building planks on the bridge to span that gap of sin between us and him. That's, that's Genesis chapter 10 and 11. But then we get to the end of the book of Genesis and we have the Messianic genealogies in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God makes multiple promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then he says, out of your, uh, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has bound himself to two promises. A promise that he has to keep if he's God. Now we think about what it takes to be a nation. To be a nation, you've got to have people, you've got to have a law, and you've got to have territory. So the rest of what we see in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, show God fulfilling that, that nation promise. And so we have the Messianic nation by way of the people in Exodus chapter 1 through 19 where Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go. And ultimately, God demonstrates his power. And after the tenth plague and the Passover lamb, they're on their way to the promised land. The people are formed in Joseph's lifetime. Do you remember Joseph is sold into slavery? And as he is a slave and forgotten by God, there's a famine and his family comes to the land of Egypt and they settle in a place called Goshen. It's where they would tend sheep. And there they grew from 70 to the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers tell us to over 600,000 fighting men. And so they've grown into this great nation. We see that starting in Exodus 1 when the children are coming so prolifically. Well, Pharaoh lets them go and they're on their way to the promised land. And we see the Messianic nation by way of law. That's in Exodus chapter 20 through Deuteronomy. Where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the covenant, the tablets of stone. He comes down and he consecrates that uh, covenant with blood. He sprinkles blood on the stones and he uh, sprinkles it on the people. There's an agreement with them and God. And so God now has a law to govern his people. Now he also wants to give them a land. But you remember in Moses' task of leading them into the land of promise that they send 12 spies to spy out the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to Abraham. And as they go, they come back and they say it's a great place, but there's giants there and we're going to be grasshoppers in their side and our side. And they say we're not going to go. And that generation is slaughtered in the wilderness. The next generation, Joshua's generation, although Joshua was older than them, Joshua was the one given the task to take them into the land. And so we have the Messianic nation by way of the territory. That's the book of Joshua. He comes in first and he takes out Jericho, which we talked about this morning. He takes the stronger south, the weaker north, and they have now conquered the land that God has promised to Abraham. God is a God who keeps his promises. And so the promise that there's going to be a great nation has been fulfilled. It's the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people. It's not his promise in the future. There's not going to be a restoration of Israel at the end of time. This was where that promise was fulfilled. 
Then we'll notice that there's the Messianic nation before it becomes a kingdom, and that's the period of the Judges. Judges, Ruth, through 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's the song, sometimes I'm not going to sing it, but there's the song we sing, you know, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, Samson, Eli, and Samuel. Just strike out Abimelech, he was a usurper, he's not a judge, but the other ones are. And they were people that God sent in to deliver God's people, to keep them together in 325 years after they take the nation before Saul takes the throne. But there are people who are characterized as a people who did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 17, 6 and Judges 21 and verse 25. And so through that period of time, they hold together with that common heritage. And at the, in Samuel's lifetime, Samuel's sons are not living righteously. And so the people come and say, your sons are not following in the ways of God. And by the way, all the nations around us have a king. We want to be like them. Samuel felt personally rejected. But instead he goes to God and God says, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Give them what they want. Listen, God always wants to be the king. He doesn't want any substitute. He wants to rule our lives, but he'll let us do what we want to do. And so what happens is he allows Israel to have a king. And so we have the Messianic kingdom, the United Kingdom. And that's covered for us in 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 1 Kings chapter 12. And it falls in three reigns. Saul, David, and Solomon. And it's during this period of time, by the way, that the books of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon are written. That's the the poetic books of of the Old Testament, the wisdom literature. The book of Job probably belongs to the time of Genesis in the patriarchal period. But what we learn here is, is that unity can only last so long. You have Saul, a man who rejects God, disobeys God. God says, I'm going to have a man after my own heart on the throne. David reigns for 40 years and then Solomon reigns for 40 years. And Solomon's heart was taken away from God by those women in his life that took him away from God. 1 Kings chapter 11. And so God divides the kingdom. He is going to punish Solomon's heirs for Solomon's idolatry. But because of David, the man after his own heart, he's going to leave him a tribe. And so we have now the United Kingdom becomes the divided kingdom. The Messianic Kingdom, the kingdom divided. And this is discussed for us in 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings chapter 17. You have the ten and a half tribes to the north that keeps the name Israel. You have the tribe and a half to the south that takes the name Judah because of the biggest tribe, the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. And in that northern kingdom, you have 19 kings to sit on the throne of Israel. Not one of them is righteous. Not one of them is. And so in that period of time, God sends such prophets as Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Amos, and Micah, saying, come back to God. Repent. Live in a way that's right. Not one righteous king. And so in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come down and they take uh, Israel into captivity. Kill them, destroy them, or they intermarry. Those ten tribes are gone. All we have now are those southern tribes. But remember, God is in a bridge-building process. He is going to fulfill His Word, bring Christ into the world so that we can be reconciled to God. But ten-twelfths of that nation through whom the Savior is going to come are gone. But God's promise is still intact. God is a God who keeps His promises. And His promise is still going through those southern tribes. And we have the Messianic kingdom, Judah alone. And that's the rest of the Old Testament.
That is 2 Kings 17 through 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And really it divides into three categories. The rest of the Old Testament, and it all centers around Babylon. It's before, during, and after Babylonian captivity. Before Babylonian captivity, there are a little over 20 righteous, I mean 20 kings that come to the throne in Judah. Five or six of them are righteous, but most of them are wicked. And as a result of this, God begins to promise that they're going to go into captivity. Before Babylon, you have Jeremiah, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, those Old Testament books that are pointing to Judah saying, Repent and return to me. They don't. And so for 70 years, they go into Babylonian captivity. From 606 B.C. to 536 B.C., they're out of their homeland. They build houses. They intermarry, I mean, they marry uh, in foreign places, and there's the settle there. And it's during that time that Ezekiel and Daniel write their books. It's incredible that Ezekiel and Daniel say, you're going to go back to Judah. You're going to go back to your land. But most of their books look beyond that land and look ahead to Christ. It's remarkable to me that when the people of God are so far away from home, God's trying to point them beyond just going back to where they were. He's trying to take them further to somewhere better. And so Ezekiel and Daniel both have a lot of allusions to Christ and the church. And then we have after the Babylonian captivity, they come back and God says, while you're here, while you're waiting on the Messiah, I want you to restore the law, I want you to rebuild the temple, and I want you to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all devoted to that restoration project when the people come back home. But then we have the Messianic uh, kingdom between the Testaments. And yes, it is that blank page between Malachi and Matthew. But Daniel chapter 7 through 12 tells us all about what happens in these 400 years. There are going to be four successive world powers They're going to be the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Daniel 2 and verse 44. And so in those 400 years, much is happening in this bridge building project. Even though we don't read about it, God's still working in history until he brings his son. Then we get to Matthew through John and we have the Messianic kingdom We have in that the fact that the Messiah comes. You have four different perspectives. A book written to a Jewish audience, to a Greek audience, to a Roman audience, and then to a universal audience in which he deals with the Savior. But the message is the Savior's come. The one that we've been anticipating, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15 that God's been at work, he's been building, and now the Messiah has come. There is a way for you to be restored. There's a bridge that's built, and it's paid by the blood of Christ. And so that's Matthew through John. And where it ends, the book of Acts resumes. We have the Messianic kingdom, the church. And that's the book of Acts for us, the only history book in the New Testament. It's the book that Hiram and I are going through on Monday night into, in, into the Word, which will lead us to go into the world. But that, that idea is that the book of Acts shows us the establishment of the church and the expansion of the church. God promises His Son in Acts 1 and verse 8, you're going to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. So that Paul could say in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel has gone to every creature under heaven. 
You see, God had a plan and God had the people to enact the plan. And as he was at work in the plan, we see that God has made available to people everywhere who want to be saved by the blood of Christ, a way to be reconciled, to have the sin problem removed. And then we have the Messianic uh, kingdom and how do you live life therein. That's the book of Romans through Jude. Most of these, in fact all of these are epistles, they're letters to tell us how to live. That we're citizens in a spiritual kingdom. That Jesus is the king. That the New Testament is the law of Christ. That we follow and we know how to make it to that destination, that that headquarters of the kingdom, heaven. And so you have instructions on how we make it through this life. And then we have the messianic kingdom and its eternal destiny. Book of Revelation, we're going to study that in Bible class later this year. It is a complicated book, but I want you to know that summarized, the book of Revelation is simply this, those that overcome can come over. Now, there's so much more than that to understanding the Bible. But I believe what we have done in just a few minutes tonight is that we have laid out what the book, the Bible, is all about. Where everything fits together. What God is trying to accomplish. Yes, there's difficult things in the Bible. Peter says as much in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16. But so much of the Bible is comprehensible. We can understand it. But it's not just meant to be an academic exercise. It's meant for us to absorb and to know and then to share. I guarantee you, you're not going to get very far out of the church building before you see somebody who needs to understand what the Bible is all about. No doubt. While you're at work this week and as you're on, uh, either in the classroom or out in the neighborhood or in other extracurricular activities, you're going to meet people who would probably give the Bible a fair shake if they thought that they could understand it. And we can. God made, He communicated to us. He wants us to know and to understand And at the bottom of it all is this bridge-building project to span the gap of sin. Sin will ultimately separate every lost person from God for eternity. And God wants nobody to be in that condition. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. Just a moment, Jeremy's going to lead us in a song of encouragement. It may be that you have a need to be responsive to the gospel of Christ. God has written a book so you would know more about that. If maybe you want to study further about that particular subject or something therein, we would love to help you. If this is your invitation, won't you come as we stand and sing?